This last week, I learned a new word, and maybe you did too. It's, it's the word twisties. It comes from the world of the Olympics, in which uh, one athlete in particular, Simone Biles, uh, made this word uh, outside the world of gymnastics famous. Evidently, gymnasts know this word well. But Simone Biles, one of the most decorated um, Olympians and, and uh, gymnasts, uh, withdrew from competition after she said that she was suffering from the twisties. And I didn't know what the twisties were, but I come to find out that it's a disconnect between the mind and the body of the athlete. And in the world of gymnastics, where they're doing all these amazing twists and maneuvers that are just absolutely mind-boggling, it could be very dangerous if you lose control. And this is what she said. It's honestly petrifying trying to do a skill but not having your mind and body in sync. Literally cannot tell up from down. It's the craziest feeling ever. I simply got so lost. My safety was at risk as well as a team medal. And so this woman who had been training hard made the hard decision to withdraw from competition so that one of her teammates could step into her place and And I know she's received a lot of flack for that, but I think that must have been a really gut-wrenching decision for her to make. But whatever the case, she faced what we might call a reality check, where she has to reevaluate everything and look at the priorities and the situation and determine a way forward. Now, you and I face reality checks at times during our lives that are are similar in some ways, in which we have to reevaluate everything and determine the path ahead. And we're going to be looking at Jesus issuing some reality checks in the passage we're going to look at today. He's going to invite his original hearers and us as well through time to do some reevaluating of everything ourselves and to determine the path forward. And with Jesus, it's always the case that it has to do with who he is and what the message is that he's proclaiming. And so let me just give you a heads up once again. We're going to be looking at one of those hard teachings of Jesus. We looked at one last week. We're going to look at another one today. And then when I'm back in the saddle in a couple weeks, we're going to look at the third one. This last week, my wife and I had a lunch date, and she asked what the text was about. And so I pulled out my phone and read it to her. (laughs) And from the very first sentence, she was like, wow, (laughs) what are we going to do with that? And I said, well, we'll find out. (laughs) We're going to call our study today Reality Check. Or maybe we should call it reality checks. Let me just say, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're going to hear Jesus saying, in essence, you need to take him with the utmost seriousness. And I'm going to encourage you to listen in what he has to say. Sure, investigate Jesus, weigh what he has to say, but know that he's going to call you, like he calls all of us, to follow him. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is one of those passages that you really need to think through because you may have someone ask you about some of these hard teachings that Jesus had and how do you make sense of that? And also for those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to take the good and enjoyable things that we love about Jesus and his teaching about the love of God and forgiveness as well as those hard things that make us uncomfortable We don't want to just pick and choose. Jesus doesn't really give us that option. So let me just pause for a moment and invite you to pray with me as we get ready to open this text and see what it is that Jesus has to say. Lord, as we come to this passage, which we've been working through the life of Jesus, we we come to a section in which he's going to be saying some, some very challenging things. Challenging to his original audience 
and challenging to us as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to, to, to think, to weigh what Jesus says, and to respond with our lives, heart and soul. And so open our eyes to see what Jesus is saying. Open our ears to hear what he wants us to hear. And open our hearts to receive the word implanted in us. And may it bear fruit all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, are you ready, my friends? Here's the first reality check that Jesus is going to mention in this passage. And that is that there is a day of reckoning for this world, and it is coming. Here we go. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, I come to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled. When I read this passage to my wife, she, as soon as I read this, that's where she said, wow. <laughs> What's your response when you hear these words of Jesus? I imagine someone saying, hey, preacher, is this one of those fire and brimstone sermons? Because if it is, I'm not really interested. I'm not into that sort of a thing. And let me just say, if that's your reaction, let me ask you just to pause on that reaction and to listen to what Jesus is saying in the context of his time and of his ministry. We tend to import a lot of things from our own time and culture into the words of Jesus that are not helpful. This statement of Jesus is actually the second of three purpose statements that are found in the Gospel of Luke. The first one came in chapter 5 when Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then the last one is actually found in chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That first purpose statement and that third purpose statement has to deal with personal salvation. Jesus reclaiming rebellious people like you and me. And this middle one, when he talks about, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, has to deal with cosmic salvation, if we could put it in those terms. We need to always remember where Jesus is in the story of the Gospels that are told for us in the Holy Scriptures. There's a four-part story that tells us about God's creation of this world and setting up our first primal parents as kings and queens to rule this world, to rule his kingdom with them. But as the story goes on, we all have rebelled against God, including those first parents, and we've been banished from that fellowship with God. But God has determined to reclaim what was lost. And so he sent his son Jesus to, to die for people like you and me, to pay that price for sin. And the story doesn't end there. It ends with a new heavens and a new earth, what Jesus described as the renewal of all things. And so for us to get to that final chapter where everything is made new, there has to come something first. And that's what Jesus is mentioning when he says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and wood that it were already kindled. When we turn to the end of the scriptures, we see in the book of Revelation these words. The Apostle John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What beautiful words, what hope-filled words. That is coming. But there's something else coming before the new heavens and new earth appear. So when we hear Jesus say, I've come to cast fire upon the earth and wood that it were already kindled, we need to hear behind those words Jesus saying something like this. I'm ready for that day when sickness, 
suffering, exploitation, oppression, violence, and death will all come to an end. And in order for that to come to an end, this world must uh, first undergo a purification. That is a transformation by fire. So let's think about the imagery of fire for just a moment. Jesus says, I come to cast fire upon the earth. We know that fire can be destructive, right? We've seen the news from the wildfires going on, especially in the West and in different parts of the world, how destructive fire can be. And it's, and it's grievous to see homes that are consumed and, and people's lives turned upside down. But fire also serves as a purification. And that's probably a less familiar image for us. Think of a person who works with precious metals. Let's say gold, for example. One of the ways gold is purified is it is heated up by fire. And all these impurities rise to the surface. It's called dross, right? And the person working with that scrapes away that dross and heats that fire up even more. And there's a purification process that goes on. And so when Jesus says, I've come to cast fire upon the earth, I think that we need to have that imagery of purification uh, in our mind. Maybe not exclusively, but it needs to be there for sure. And so Jesus says, there's a transformation that is coming. There's a purification that is coming. And would that it has already come. Now, I can imagine someone hearing these words of Jesus and saying, I don't know, this seems all too intense. I like the idea of a God who is loving and patient with everyone, not, not a God or a Savior who talks about fire and, and, and judgment. This issue was raised by a person named Miroslav Volf in a book called Exclusion and Embrace. It's a, a very uh, interesting work talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. And he raises the question that a lot of people raise, and he says this, Should not a loving God be patient and keep luring the perpetrator into goodness? And that's really what a lot of people say. God should be patient, and he should be more patient. He should keep wooing people to himself. Wolf says, this is exactly what God does. But how patient should God be? The day of reckoning must come, not because God is too eager to pull the trigger, but because every day of patience in a world of violence means more violence, and every postponement of vindication means letting insult accompany injury. What's he saying? He's saying God is patient. But how patient should God be? Every day of his patience with a world in the shape that it is right now, where there's oppression and violence, means there is more hurt. And so God's patience is costly. And it's costly, especially to those who are being victimized. And, and you cannot understand the, the ministry of Jesus without hearing Jesus say, there is a day when all that is going to come to an end. And I will make everything new. The Apostle Peter, who was there that day when Jesus um, spoke these words that we're looking at, would later write to some Christians living in the Roman Empire these words. He said, the heavens and earth that now exist, exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And he goes on and says, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, Peter says, 
The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter uses this imagery of a deconstruction that takes place, a laid bareness of this world and everything that has been done on it. And God will judge at that point. So we, we see these words of Jesus, and, and they're, they're strong words. But can we just appreciate for a moment the clear implication of what Jesus is saying here? Jesus of Nazareth, this man who lived 2,000 years ago, believes that he is the one who is going to do this. Jesus believes he is the one that is going to bring fire and purify this world. So what do we do with that? Either Jesus really knew that wasn't true, but he was just trying to fool everyone, and so he is lying, or maybe he was just out of his mind and crazy and should be put in an insane asylum. Or maybe, just maybe, Jesus is speaking truth here. So reality check number two that we find in this passage is actually a day of reckoning that is coming for Jesus. In verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until that is accomplished. Jesus says he has a baptism to be baptized with. And someone says, wait a minute, Jesus already went through a baptism, didn't he? And if you're thinking that, you're right. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, was baptized And that marked the beginning of his public ministry in this world. It's an identification with his people and a setting aside of Jesus to be the agent of God's mission. And so he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And as we understand from the the rest of the scriptures, that baptism was the death of Jesus. And he said, how great is my distress in thinking about that death. That word distress simply means to be in a, a state of mental constriction. Think about when you're in a a state of mental constriction. There's something that's pressing down on you that's preoccupying your thinking, that is front and center, and you really can't be thinking about anything else because it occupies all of your thoughts. So Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until, he says, it is accomplished. That word accomplished is an interesting word. It translates a Greek word that means to perform or to fulfill or to complete. Now, let's stop and think about it. You and I will one day die, unless Jesus comes back first. We don't think of our death as something we have to accomplish. (laughs) We think of it as something that's going to happen to us. We don't think it as something that we're supposed to fulfill. And we don't think it's something that we're supposed to complete. But Jesus spoke using these terms. Jesus knows that he's about to go to his death. That's why he's speaking with a sharp point to these disciples and to the crowds who are listening in. He's trying to get them ready for what's about to happen. And so Jesus knows that he has to undergo this baptism of death. He has great distress over it. It's preoccupying his mind until it happens. And why? Because in this death, God is going to take the sins of people like you and me and lay them upon Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul says, God is going to condemn in the flesh of Jesus our sin. 
We sung that song a while ago, Name Above All Names. It had that line that said, The Father willed to crush him as a sacrifice for sin. And what we see in the death of Jesus is God the Father working with God the Son to bring about the salvation of the world. And that new heavens and new earth, what the Bible describes as the kingdom of God, will come and there'll be a purification by fire. But before that, Jesus says he's going to be baptized with his, this, this, his own kind of fire in this as the fire of God's justice falls upon him. And so there's a day of reckoning coming with Jesus. There's another reckoning that's spoken of in this passage. And it's a day for making a costly choice that is already upon us. It's already upon the disciples and the crowds listening to Jesus. And it's upon us even to this day. And <laughs> what Jesus says next is, is what none of us really expect him to say. But it seems like a question we can answer. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? And someone says, oh, this is an easy one, Jesus. Yes, you are the Prince of Peace. In fact, every Christmas, we talk about peace on earth. We talk about how you're the the Prince of this world and how you've come to bring peace. And if you're thinking that, you wouldn't be blamed because that's, that's what we think. So Jesus asked the question, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division." What do we do with that? <laughs> Someone says, Jesus, this makes me extremely uncomfortable. And I think Jesus would say, I know. One of the things that's interesting about the life of Jesus is that he, he did come to comfort the afflicted. But there are often times in the ministry of Jesus where he afflicted the comfortable. He said some harsh things, things that were edgy and controversial that had a point on them to get a hold of people's attention. And we're going to talk about it more in just a moment. Jesus did come to bring peace on earth. But in this context right here, he's talking about the decision that each and every person has to make. And so he goes on in verse 52 and says this. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, two against three. There will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus says, from this point going forward, people's response to him will cause division. And the important point for us to think about in this moment, my friends, is that Jesus is the most controversial and divisive figure in history precisely because of what he taught and who he claimed to be. Jesus claimed to be the divine one coming to people. Coming as Israel was expecting to have her king arrive. And he comes. But he comes in a way that was veiled to many people. They wanted a Messiah who would conquer, not a Messiah who would die. They wanted a Messiah who would take care of all the bad people in the world and elevate them to be supreme over all. And Jesus wasn't playing the game that they thought he was playing. For some people, this comes home very deeply. Nabil Qureshi was a young man who was raised in a devout Muslim home. And he has a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, in which he talks about his own confrontation with the person of Jesus. 
He was raised as a devout Muslim. But he began having conversations with Christians, and one particular Christian really pressed him to consider Jesus as we find him in the Gospels. And as he read about that, and as he sought to know the truth, he found himself coming to this place where he believed that Jesus was the Son of God, and that his death on the cross accomplished salvation for people who trust in him. And he placed his trust in Jesus, as so many hundreds of millions have done throughout history. But that put him at odds with his family, who shunned him. I listened to a, a video of him this last week, uh, in which he, he talked about how it, it just caused so much deep pain in, in their life and his life as well. And, and his parents refused to even come to his wedding because he had become a Christian. I think of a good friend of mine who became a Christian years after she was married. And it really made her husband mad. And at one time when they were having really what was an argument about this, he said these painful words, if I knew you were going to become a Christian, I would never have married you. And she found herself in a very difficult place where the man that she loved and married grew more and more distant because of the presence of Jesus in her life. Ralph Davis in his commentary in the book of Luke said, love for Jesus may mean you lose the love of those you love most. I hate that. And I think there's a sense in which Jesus hates that as well. But that is the truth, that sometimes when we follow Jesus and determine to bring our lives in line with his design, to live as a disciple of Jesus, sometimes those closest to us begin to push away and maybe even might disown us. Jesus in his own life knew some of this pain. The Gospel of Mark tells us a time when, when Jesus and his disciples went home and a crowd had gathered again around him, as they often did, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So Jesus has been ministering. He comes back home to those people who love him the most. And they go out to confront Jesus because he's out of his mind. Mark tells us about an incident that took place and then he brings the family of Jesus back in and says this. His mother, Mary, whom we love, his brothers, they all came out and were standing outside and and sent to him and called to him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus understood that even his closest family relations with his mother, with his brothers, was going to be pressed to the limit because of the claims he was making and the things that he taught. And so that's a reality check we need to, to take into consideration. Here's, here's, here's another one. Do we know how to interpret the times? Jesus goes on in verse 54 and says, He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, he says to the crowd. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus has been ministering for several years, calling people to respond to his message. He's, he's perhaps a month or two out from Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And he speaks sharply and pointedly, telling the crowds, you hypocrites. I can imagine Peter off on the side saying, Jesus, this isn't helping our message. This is not how you make friends and win people and influence people. I don't know if he actually said that, but he might have been thinking that. But Jesus is pressing the crowds. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth, the weather, the wind. How do you not know how to interpret the present time? I have come to you, bringing salvation in my hands. And there are many who don't want it. The Apostle John tells us in the opening of his gospel these words. The true light, speaking of Jesus... The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus came to the people who should have been primed for his appearance, to welcome him with open arms, to follow him no matter what the cost. And they, by and large, rejected Jesus. What does it mean for us today? Well, in the words of the book of Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Here the writer of Hebrews is is talking to first century, predominantly uh, a Jewish audience, and tells them that just like the people in the Old Testament hardened their hearts, there's a real danger that you might harden your hearts. And so if you hear the Lord calling you to follow him, Don't harden your hearts. I was thinking about these words this last week as I read them from the Apostle Paul. He said this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Peter says this is what's going to happen in in the last days. And this is a side debate. We don't have to go too much into it. I, I believe the last days were the last days from the time of the apostles to even now. But man, don't these words sound like they're taken right off Twitter and social media, the news outlet. We live in a world that is really brutal. People are self-interested, swollen with conceit. And even those who have an appearance of godliness, how many times have we seen headlines of religious leaders who have, who have fallen? Do we know how to interpret the times? My friends, even now, Jesus is calling you and me to respond to him. And then there's one last section of this passage I want us to look at. And it looks like Jesus is shifting gears and talking about something entirely different. But I think he's not. He says in verse 57, Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. 
Jesus is using an illustration that many people would have understood. A, a person getting sued and being taken to court. And he says, if, if that happens, make every effort to settle so that you don't get thrown in prison and, and stay there till you have to pay every last penny. Has Jesus changed the topic of conversation? I don't think so. He's still talking about the need for us to get ready in light of that coming day. And so here's the key thought. Jesus is telling the crowds that there is a day in which we will stand before the judge of all the earth. And we need to get right with God before it's too late. But how can we do that? The question is asked in the book of Job. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? If we take seriously what the scriptures say, each of us, myself including, have committed cosmic treason against the creator. We have all, like lost sheep, gone our own way. And so if, you know, say me and my friend Joe here, if we got in a little tip with one another, we might be able to pull in someone to mediate between us. But what happens when there's an issue between God and you? Who can intercede? How can you set things right? How can you possibly say to God, I will make everything right? Everything you have is a gift from him. The Apostle Paul says, I'm sorry, the Apostle John, in his letter entitled 1 John, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, a fancy word meaning a sacrifice of atonement, He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Writing to these early followers of Jesus, he says, look, if you sin, we actually have an advocate. That word advocate simply is a term that means lawyer. We have one who speaks in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That righteous one died for the unrighteous ones, people like you and me. And he stands between us and God pleading our case, saying, whatever is charged to them, consider it charged to my account when he paid it in full. Scriptures tell us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus comes with salvation. We're not called to to work our way to God, to bribe God, to try to make things right on our own. Salvation is found in the person of Jesus, or as Paul would say to his protege Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at its proper time. So my friends, can I summarize our study so far with these words? Jesus may be divisive, yet he calls us to be decisive about him. Jesus says some hard and controversial things. Things that usually don't find themselves on calendars or plaques that we might want to decorate our home with. But nevertheless, it's the same Jesus who died for our sins, who who loves us enough to, to be truthful and honest with us. And though he might be controversial, and though he may be divisive, Though it may cost us a lot to follow Jesus, he calls us to be decisive about him. So let me just conclude by saying, Jesus, my friends, is the ultimate reality check. When we understand who he is and what he has come to do and what he wants to do in renewing this whole world, 
is a time for us to reevaluate, reevaluate everything. I'm sorry, I'm getting excited. And Trump, trumping over my own Trump. I can't even speak anymore. <clears throat> Jesus calls us to respond to him, to reevaluate everything, and think about the path ahead. So, Jesus did come to secure peace with God for people like us. Scriptures tell us that when we trust in Jesus, when we say yes to him, when we, when we understand that we're sinners and he gave himself for us and calls us to trust in him, to, to put our faith in him, when we say yes, the Bible tells us that we are justified in God's sight. That word justified is a judicial term, which simply means no longer guilty and declared to be in the right. And we're in the right before God when we trust in Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. And, it's, and the scriptures tell us that, that when that happens, we now have peace with God. And so Jesus calls us to be decisive about him, even though he may be divisive. And so my friends, this is a, a point for all of us to think about what we do with Jesus and how we move forward and evaluate. Let me just say in the words of the book of Joshua, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. For those of us who do follow Jesus, I want to just close with this reference in the Gospel of John. This is a time when Jesus, again, was saying some very edgy and very controversial things, and all of a sudden, disciples of Jesus who had said they wanted to follow him start dropping like flies. And John tells us, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? So imagine the crowds before Jesus, and he starts saying some hard things. And they're like, who can, who can take this? And they start, so many are leaving that Jesus turns to his twelve disciples who's been with them the whole time and says, are you guys going to leave too? And Simon Peter, who often served as kind of the, the spokesperson for the disciples, maybe just because he was the first one to blurt out whatever was in his head, answered Jesus and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'm so thankful that's in the scriptures. It tells me that Peter, who had invested about three years of his life with Jesus right now, there were times when he was thinking about his options. <laughs> when Jesus says some hard things, they were controversial and had a point on them. And everybody was checking out. But as he looked at his options, he's like, where else can I go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. And so, if I can paraphrase them, I'm all in, Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, the minister in New England, once said, Resolved, I will live for God, and if no one else does, I still will. 
think that's exactly the response that Jesus was going out with the audience in his day. And it's exactly the response that he's looking for in our own hearts. So my friends, though Jesus be divisive, may you be decisive about him.